Well, good morning and welcome to Redeemer this morning. Thanks for getting out and joining us. Um, as we uh, gather for worship, I invite you to hear these words that draw us together in this time. We are here to worship a remarkable God. The love of God welcomes us, the grace of Christ awaits us, and the joy of the Spirit enfolds us. So come as people who are truly free. Come as those who are invited guests. Come as God's children, and may the love of God overflow in our hearts. May the grace of Christ liberate our spirits, and may the joy of the Spirit sing through us today. Let's bow in a moment of prayer. God, you call us from our work during the week to a time of worship with you today, so help us to respond to the movement of your Spirit among us. You are the creator of all things, the one who calls rich and poor to meet together, for we are all worthy in your sight. Help us today as we hear your word to put our trust in you and you alone. You are the one who guides all of life with your powerful hand and fills each of us with hope. So be among us today, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to wrap up this teaching series called The Power of Hope, uh, which has been based on the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. I think it's been a good study. I hope you find it has been as well. A number of folks have mentioned how much uh, these messages have meant in their life and touched their life personally. Next week uh, begins another very busy month in the life of the church. It's November, and we're gonna, in worship, we're going to focus on another Old Testament book for a short four-week series during November. It's the very last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And uh, interestingly enough, Malachi in some ways picks up right at the end of where Jeremiah leaves off. And it it begins with uh, where God's people are after the 70-year exile. So I, I would like to challenge you to read this short little book before you come next week. It is a short little book, but it's packed with great lessons for us today. And I hope you're planning on being here as we move into these final couple of months of the year, uh, as we lead into Christmas. But more than that, I hope that you're praying for someone that you can invite to come with you. You know, we know that statistically, this is a, a time of the year when more people are receptive to an invite to church than just about any other time. So I hope that there's someone in your life that you work with or family or a neighbor or friend that is not going to church currently that you can invite to be part of uh, something here at Redeemer in these next couple of months. Let's bow in a moment of prayer, shall we? Holy God, fill us today with your constant love so that our hearts and our souls may be surrounded with your truth. Help us to build our lives on a strong foundation so that we may always make good choices that lead to the life abundant that you promised. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me share with you this morning the story of a young woman. Her name is Mary. After many years of hoping, unfortunately, things have not always gone well for her. Mary's first three papers received failing grades, and one of her instructors made some disparaging comments. Leaving out some of the personal information, here's part of what she wrote about this experience as she asked for advice about the hard time that she was going through. She says, when I started, I was scared. I stepped out in faith to do something for which I felt completely inadequate. 
The classes have been very difficult for me, and sometimes I have almost reached the breaking point. I am intrigued with the idea that I am right where God wants me to be. Remember, that is a theme that we've talked about all the way through Jeremiah 29. I'm intrigued with the idea that I am right where God wants me to be. He is in control and will use this whole experience somehow. But I have questions about whether or not this is the right thing for me to do. And then she makes some good points that anyone would ask in the same situation. She said, I don't understand why, if God opened the door for me to go back to school, why I'm struggling so much. I don't understand why the demoralizing low grades. I have prayed for God's help and my prayers seem to be going nowhere. There's been no progress. Does God want me to fail my exams after opening this door? Am I right where God wants me to be, twiddling my thumbs and hoping against hope? Or is this an all things work together for good for those that love the Lord situation or not? I'm asking God to speak a word of encouragement to me. I appreciate her honesty, don't you? I'm beginning this message with her email partly because we've all been in similar situations. It's very tough to take a step of faith, especially when we feel inadequate and then have it more or less blow up in our face. Deep inside, we all like to think that if we obey God and do what God tells us to do, then things may be tough at times, but they're gonna work out somehow. And in the macro sense, that statement is certainly true. Obeying God is always, always the best way to go. <clears throat> the fruit of obedience will always be ultimately sweet to the taste. But it's that little word, ultimately, that trips us up. Because sometimes obedience may seem quite bitter to us when we've tried to do the right thing, when we've ventured out in faith, when we've taken the next step, when we have obeyed God's will as much as, with as much courage as we could master and followed the leading of God where, where we were given that leading and still we end up frustrated and wondering if somehow we made a mistake. Whenever those thoughts come to me, and they do from time to time. I recall the circumstances that greeted Abraham when he finally arrived in the promised land. You can read his story back in the early chapters of the first book of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. Abraham left the land of Ur, we're told. He was a wealthy landowner, businessman, not knowing where God was calling him to go exactly. But it was an act of faith on his part to follow God's call. And when, after much difficulty, he finally reached the promised land, who was there to greet him? Absolutely no one. Hebrews 11.9 says that he lived in tents. He was like a foreigner in the land of promise. In many ways, this part of the journey was even more remarkable than leaving his home country of Ur in the first place. And as long as he was traveling across the desert, he could dream about the future. But when he got to Canaan, to the promised land, all those illusions disappeared. Think of what he did not find there in the promised land. No welcome to, welcome to the promised land, Abraham, sign, you know. No discount coupons from the local merchants, no housewarming party, no visit from the welcome wagon, no mayor there with the key to the city, no band playing happy days are here again. 
No ticker tape parade. You see, nobody was expecting him. Nobody cared that he came. Nobody gave him anything. God had promised him this land, and he had to scratch out an existence in tents. Hundreds of years would pass before God's promise was completely fulfilled. Abraham never saw the fulfillment of the promise, and neither did his son Isaac or Isaac's son Jacob. Was Abraham in the will of God? Yes, he was. Was he right to leave the land of Ur and follow God's call? You bet. Was he doing what God wanted him to do? Absolutely. So why then was this successful businessman now having to live in tents because God's timetable is not the same as our timetable? God's timetable is not the same as ours. He's not in a big hurry like we are. God works across generations to accomplish his purposes. We worry about which shirt or dress to buy for the big party this weekend. There is a big difference in those two perspectives. But there's something else even more remarkable in Genesis chapter 12. What happens when Abraham gets to the promised land? He moves, we're told, from place to place. He sets up an altar and worships God. And then what happens? A famine strikes the land. What's up with that? He's doing all the right things. And God sends a famine. Well, here's... I've got some a competing grandchild this morning, so I, I apologize. <laughs> Maybe the next preacher in the family, who knows? But here was Abraham, who was a man who dedicated everything to follow God. He sacrificed his career. He gave up his security. He traveled a long distance, so he, you know, he, he didn't have a home of his own anymore. And now there's a famine. How do we explain that? As it turns out, Abraham ends up going down to Egypt where he gets into trouble because he lies about his wife Sarah to the Pharaoh. It doesn't make any sense. Why the famine? Why the test? And the answer is the test is the whole point. After all that Abraham has been through, you would think that God would give him a period of peace and quiet. But life is rarely that simple for any of us, isn't it? God often sends trouble following a period of prosperity in order that he can test our motives. Are we serving him just because things are going well? But what if we lose our job or our marriage or our friends or our reputation or our wealth or our home or even our own health? We still serve, will we still serve God when those things happen to us? Now let's think about it in a little different way. Every coin has two sides, a head and a tail. So too, every event in life either draws us to God or away from God. If Abraham had stayed in Canaan during the famine, he would have learned to trust God in a brand new way, in the midst of the famine. If he hadn't lied to the Egyptians, he would have given God a chance to meet his needs without resorting to deception. But because he didn't do those things, that famine led him away from God. How much better it would be if we would learn this lesson. Instead of complaining about every trial that we're going through and saying, why me, God? We would be better off to say, Lord, what are you trying to teach me through this? 
Every difficult situation gives us the opportunity to either become a student of God's grace or a hapless victim of negative circumstances. And when the famine comes, we need to remember that God has not abandoned us. He sends the famines of life in order to see if we're going to trust him, even in the midst of a difficult moment. We can say instead, here's another opportunity for us to trust God. It's not easy to say that. It's not easy to say, you know, I wonder what wonderful thing God is going to do for me in the midst of this tough time. Sometimes it takes more grace to just stay in the promised land than it does to get there in the first place. Let's come back to address the questions raised by Mary's email. And of course, to her specific situation, we may not be able to give a definitive answer. We rarely can know when we are in the middle of a discouraging circumstance why it's happened or how everything's going to turn out. Sometimes in our quest to do God's will, we focus too much on questions like, am I right where God wants me to be? That's an awful good question to ask ourselves sometimes. But to ask it that way puts too much of the focus on us and on our own decisions. We naturally tend to see life with ourselves at the center of the universe. We spend hours worrying about questions regarding our career, our education, our future. And on one level, that's healthy. We don't, if we don't think about our future, nobody else will either. So we ought to spend some time thinking about the details of life. But life doesn't begin and end with us. Deep inside, we know that's true, but we live as if the universe existed for our personal benefit. Some years ago, I read about a high school football team that lost a big game by the humiliating score of 51 to nothing. It's a difficult, it was a difficult night you know, for any team when you get beat that bad in football. But after it was all over, the coach was trying to console his players, and he told them to forget about it and to move on. And here's what he said. You know, there are millions of people all over the world tonight who didn't even know we played a game. And along that same line, I'm reminded of something I read once. When we face a major decision, we ought to ask ourselves, what difference will this make 10,000 years from now? And that author went on to say that most of our decisions, the ones we agonize over, won't really matter 10,000 years from now. Kind of a liberating way to look at life. But think of it this way, 95% of what you worried about this last week won't matter even three weeks from now, much less 10,000 years. But what will matter is whether or not you decide to follow Jesus. All of those those trivial, piddly details that soak up so much of our time and energy will one day be seen for what they really are, trivial, piddly details. And with regard to the specific questions in the story, we started uh, with uh, today, Mary was asking, it may be that Mary needs to find another line of study. Maybe God allowed her to enter this program, not in order for her to graduate, but to allow her to see that she is gifted in some other area. Or maybe this is simply a test to develop her perseverance. Maybe it was a way for her to see previously unseen weaknesses. Maybe it's just a test of her motives, who knows. 
I once heard someone pray, Lord, you did not bring us this far to cause us to fail. And that's true enough. But our definition of failure and God's definition are two very different things. Today's failure may be a stepping stone to whatever God has for us tomorrow. We simply can't be sure of all the details in advance. But in all of this, our starting point is what's most significant. In times of great discouragement, we can start in one of two places. We can either start with our problems or we can start with God. Starting with our problems leads ultimately to confusion and discouragement. But starting with God leads us to the solid ground of hope. I'm not smart enough to reason my way from my problems back to God. I don't know about you, but I'm not. If I get a rejection letter, and it's happened to me more than once in my life, I really can't see any great divine purpose in that. It's just no. Period. But maybe in God's economy, it's no, not now. Or no, not this particular thing. Or no, I want you to move in a new direction. Or don't spend too much time dwelling on this. My point is this, when I look through the tiny lens of my life and try to see God's divine purposes, I'm like the flea trying to count the stars in the sky. We can't start with ourselves and hope to find satisfactory answers. If I start with me, I will always end up with me. And I'll be no better off, so we have to start with God. And that's where Jeremiah 29 becomes so instructive for us. The last part of the message of God to these disappointed exiles in Babylon contains a promise and a condition and a reward. Look at verse 12. In those days when you pray, I will listen. And if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you, and I will bring you home again to your own land. The promise, when you pray, I will listen. The condition, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. And the reward, I will end your captivity, and I will restore your fortune, and I will bring you home again to your land. Consider what these things mean. God always intended to bring these people back home. The captivity was for 70 years, but God always planned to bring them back. God invites them, though, to seek him even in the captivity and desires, and the third point, God desires an intimate relationship with them in the present. Now, I find this very helpful. As we look into, uh, into the future, we know that God intends to bring us to an appointed end. And that means that he will see it, uh, to it that we are led step by step from where we are today in life to where he ultimately wants us to be. But exactly how he will get us there, what steps in the meantime we take, is not always clearly revealed. And certainly it means for us what it meant for the exiles, that sometimes we may feel like we're stuck in a difficult situation. We're stuck in Babylon, that God has forgotten us, that we've messed up so badly that there's no hope for the, in the future for us. And God says, don't judge my purposes by what you see in the mirror or what you see around you. God is reminding his people that they are in no position to judge him at all. 
So what's left for us when we find ourselves discouraged and confused? We are invited simply to seek the Lord. What a great thought that is. God wants us to seek him because when we do, we will find him. That's his promise. He's not playing hide and seek with us. He is always near at hand. Don't miss the point of Jeremiah 29. This invitation to seek God was given to his wayward people who had blown it so badly that they were taken from their homeland and transplanted into the heart of a heathen, idol-worshiping nation. And many of them would never go home again because they would die in Babylon before the 70 years came to an end. So what do you do if you find yourself in Babylon? And the answer is seek the Lord. Seek him with all of your heart. Seek to know him. God desires an intimate relationship with each of us, even when we've blown it badly. Sometimes we have to just slow down in order to hear God speaking to us. No, on more than one occasion, I've counseled a church or a pastor who is anxious to step out in faith and start a new ministry to just slow down the process in order to have time to work through all the potential issues. And we Americans love to rush forward with our plans because we're in a hurry to serve the Lord. But God's timetable and ours are two different things. Sometimes slow is better and there's great wisdom in slowing down. As we study the events of life and try to discern what it all means for us, Keep in mind that God intends to bring us to the, to the place where our hearts are focused on him and him alone. And that explains why it was good for the Jews to end up in Babylon. When they, were they being punished? Yes. But that wasn't the end of their story. God put them there so that in Babylon they would learn to seek him in a way they had not been doing in Jerusalem. He does the same thing to us. He does the same thing to us. God cannot be contained in buildings built by human hands, not even by the beautiful temple in Jerusalem. He is above and beyond all human limitations. And when the Apostle Paul explained this principle to the people of Athens in Acts chapter 17, he pointed out that God gives us life and he gives us breath and he spreads us out in different nations around the globe and he does it so that people would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him even though he's not far from any of us. Have you ever wondered why you were born into a particular family at a particular moment in history? After all, you could have been born, you know, 500 years earlier or in Brazil or in India or in New Zealand. Why did you end up where you are right now? You see, God arranged everything in your life so that you might seek him. You were you are where you are right now because God wants you to seek him and to find him. And he desires a personal relationship with you. This spiritual truth sheds some light on things that go on in our life, even like cancer or the death of a loved one or financial collapse or the breakup of a marriage. Why would God allow such things? One part of the answer is that God uses sometimes even awful events to teach us that we can't make it on, in life without him. Many of us could testify that it wasn't until we hit rock bottom that we finally found the Lord. And when we are flat on our back, totally broke, health gone, marriage dissolved, children estranged, career ruined, 
nowhere to turn, no hope in the world, in the blackness of that moment, we cry out, God, have mercy on me. And God responds, I've just been waiting for you to ask. So we learn the hard way that life is meaningless without God. We come at last to the bottom line as we face our own personal Babylons. If you're in a hard place in your own life right now, don't despair and don't think that God has forgotten you. Remember, God often puts us in places we don't like so that we're forced to confront our own weakness. And we will often be in those places longer than we want to be. Those times are wasted if we just simply mope and complain and get bitter at God, but those times are redeemed if we use them for our own personal growth to serve others and to know God better. The great mystic Thomas Akempis, who wrote the book Imitation of Christ, said, seek God, not happiness. We tend to have it backwards. We seek happiness and hope to have God thrown in as a bonus, but we end up with neither. And the paradox of the gospel is that when we truly seek God, we will find him. And we will get the happiness part, the deep fulfillment, the joy, the abundant life thrown in as a bonus. But it takes years for many of us to figure that out, and some of us never get it. To the very end, we pursue earthly happiness, we pursue our own agendas, and we wonder why life leaves us frustrated and disillusioned. So let me ask you today, what do you see when you look at your life? It's an important question to answer because what we see determines what we will seek. And if all we see is Babylon, we're going to be miserable. But if we see the hand of God, we're going to have hope. Someone once said, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. There's always choices to be made, even in the tiniest details of life. Let me close this morning with a story. I was struck by a scene from the final episode of now a decade-old miniseries on the life of John Adams. Maybe you remember it. In this scene, he is now almost 90 years old. He's, have, he's outlived his wife, several of his children, and all of his contemporaries except Thomas Jefferson. His health is failing, and Adam looks like and moves like a very old man. Yet on a sunny day at Peacefield, his Massachusetts farms, uh, farm, Adam takes, Adams takes a walk in the country, out of one of the country lanes with one of his sons, and he says, I'm not tired of life, I still have hope. Pausing to catch his breath, he bends over slightly, and, he, and, and the son says, Dad, it's time to go home. Leaning on his son's shoulders, uh, Dad says, rejoice evermore as they turn for home. And he sees this uh, puzzled look on his son's face, and Adams grabs his son's face, and he laughs, and he repeats it again. He says, rejoice evermore, evermore. It's from St. Paul, you fool. And then he spies a tiny blossom on a flower. And he said, I have seen the Queen of France bedecked with millions of dollars in jewelry, but I tell you, and he points with his walking stick to this tiny blossom, and he said, there is more beauty in that flower than I've ever seen in the court of France. And as Adams turns to slowly walk back to the house, he says, Abigail often told me that I needed to appreciate the beauty of small things more than I do. And she was right. Now I find that if I look at the smallest thing, 
my imagination begins to roam the Milky Way. Here's the bottom line of this message and of this whole series. Life is so short for all of us. We come quickly, we leave quickly, and we will all be buried someday. But the gift of life is precious. And how blessed we are to be here. Even in Babylon, even in those moments that we don't understand, those places that we have found ourselves that are discouraging, we can seek the Lord. And how sad if we go through life complaining about our misfortune, focused on ourselves and blind to all the beauty that God has placed on our path. Pray with me. God, we call on you today. We ask that you hear us as we go about our day-to-day business. Let us seek you first. Thank you that you hear us. You never hide from us when we seek you with all of our heart. So may every single thing we do today and in the days to come start with you. Amen.